sorts of holidays. So people are gone on this Sunday and will be next. But I'm glad you're here today. I want you to take your Bible and open it to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. And after you locate that, I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Actually, last week I had you turn to 1 Thessalonians 2, but we never got to it, but we will this morning. I want to help you this morning. I want the Word of God to help you. I believe it will. Ephesians chapter 6 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to talk to you this morning about establishing a growth atmosphere in your home or in your family. One of my favorite things to do as a, as a boy was to go to Six Flags over Georgia. And so every summer, I think the park opened in 1967. Uh, we didn't go that first year. I don't, as I recall, we didn't. But in the early years, we went as a family. And then as a church, we went frequently. And then my dad took trips over there. Many times during the summers, he drove buses and took groups, church groups. And I was kind of calculating this past week how many times that I'd been to Six Flags over Georgia. I can't uh, come up with an accurate number, but I'm sure that it was at least 40 times and maybe over 40 times that I'd been to Six Flags um, with, my, with my dad a lot of times. Sometimes he would come home and he'd say, uh, I'm going to Six Flags on Saturday or Thursday or whenever. Uh, you want to go? And so I always wanted to go with him. And we would go over there and uh, go see the shows and ride summer rides. We'd ride the log ride because we'd both get wet. It was hot. And uh, every now and then I'd ride something by myself. He didn't want to ride the roller coasters. And then... Uh, we would eat a lot. And so I, I went to Six Flags a whole lot. I, I thought it was just the best thing in the world. I had never seen anything like Six Flags. It was an incredible place. Some of you have been there. Just phenomenal, especially as a little boy. But even as a teenager, there was nothing like it. I met Paula in 1977, and then we were engaged in the summer of 1978, and then we were married uh, in June of 1979. So months before we were married, I asked her, I said, where do you want to go on our honeymoon? And boy, she didn't even think about it. She immediately said, I want to go to Disney World. Well, she'd been to Disney World before, I think twice. I know at least once. I'd never been. So I thought, well, that'd be a great idea. So sure. So we went there and we went a few other places down in that part of the country and so from the first few minutes, I was on the property. They didn't have Epcot and the other things there. In fact, Epcot opened in 82. They were building it. So they only had what's called the Magic Kingdom. So the first few minutes that I was there, literally, I'm going to talk to you a few minutes about that and kind of segue into the message. It'll make sense in a minute. Uh, here was my thought. Now, now, this is no Six Flags operation. I clearly remember this, that this is no Six Flags. I remember how they parked the cars. Uh, they didn't just take your money and wave you in and just have some guy disinterested, you know, point in the way. It was beyond professional. Uh, everybody there was courteous. Uh, 
Everything they did had a distinctiveness about it. The people were attentive. They went the second mile. When you got inside the park, they, if you asked them a question, all the people had an answer. You never heard this. Well, I don't know. In fact, if they didn't know, they would take you to a person that did know. If you ask them where something was, they didn't say, well, if you go down three streets over here, you do this. They didn't do any of that. They took you there. It, it was just unbelievable. The shows and the rides were just were something else. They, they weren't just a shade above. It was phenomenal. Now, this was, you know, 41 years ago. And I just remember marveling, how did they put this together? You know, I don't know that the rides, in fact, there's probably better roller coasters around. I'm sure there are. But it was the, it was the wonder, how, how did they do this? And how did they put these people to get to do these things? They called the people that paid money to come there, they called them guests. Uh, they weren't customers. Actually, you are. But they trained the people who they call cast members. They call them, these are the guests, and you treat them that way. And in that day, um, about three days after we were married, we went. I, I was just blown away by the spirit that Walt Disney, who had passed away eight years before, had imprinted on Disney World. They had what was known as Disney Village then. And how that he had made a common experience in terms of going to an amusement park very uncommon. It was an uncommon experience. So beyond that people talk about it, they pay a lot of money to go because you're not paying for the rides. You're paying for, for other things. Now, here's the difference in, in those two experiences. In fact, we haven't been to Six Flags very much. Because the difference is in one word, it's in culture. But it is a drastic difference. And I want you to get that illustration. Because I'm going to apply it in a very practical way in a few moments to your home. It is a drastic difference. It's an intentional difference. Now, as I said last week, I'm going to finish up the message I began last week. Today... The word culture is a, is a buzzword. People talk about it. Leaders study it. There's been some things written about it. And they want to know, how can I instill a certain culture into my organization? Well, every, every organization already has a culture. Uh, you're just unaware of it. But what you want to make sure of is, are the identifying markers of my culture what they ought to be, and are they healthy? Let me give you a quote by a business leader about culture. Sometimes business people talk about uh, things that are soft in an organization, and they don't mean um, unimportant, they mean secondary. Uh, things that are not soft are things like training, uh, leadership training, technical expertise. Those things aren't soft. And for many years, they were thought that, that when you have leadership training, when you have technical expertise, this is what gives you a cutting edge. And everything else is, is, is soft. Those are, are soft leadership skills. That's soft in an organization. 
the attitude of the employees, the person at the desk that greets you. Those are soft things. I came across, excuse me, I came across this quote by a business leader. Here's what he said. He said, I used to believe that culture was soft. That's what he means. It was, yeah, it's important, but it's not primary. And had little bearing on our bottom line. What I believe today is that our culture has everything to do with our bottom line now and into the future. Now, the reason I want you to see that is that every business has a culture. Every organization has a culture. Every team, every sports team, professional, high school, on down, they have a culture. Now, as I said before, it's usually something that people are unaware of. It's a byproduct of different factors. But there is a culture there. Someone else said this, the difference between an average company and a great company is often the culture. You say, preacher, why why do you keep talking about this? Because it's important in your family. I'm going to apply this. Stay with me. The difference in an average family and a great family is often the culture. Just change the words there. I mentioned uh, Disney World at the beginning. They strive to be known as the happiest place on earth. Now, look, I believe in the joy of the Lord supersedes all of those things. But here's what they do. They strive to create a a place of fantasy that when you go in there, you believe, and I can't go into all of it, that you're a part of that particular experience. And so all of the behaviors, the attitudes, the employees are, are to reinforce that with their with their attitude, the way they act, so that by and large, it's not like Six Flags. Now, if your uncle started Six Flags, I love your uncle. I've been there many times, okay? But the point I'm trying to make is there's a difference in culture. In the business world, when you have a better culture, you're going to make more money. And in your family, when you have a better culture, you're going to have a greater impact. Prisons have cultures. You can read books about it. You can watch television about it. It's a place of desperation, a place of selfishness, a place of anger, uh, kind of ruled by mafias of different groups. But there's a place of fear. There's a culture within, within a prison. Now, I've given you some illustrations of businesses and sports teams and, and organizations and so forth. I want to mention a more important reality that every family, every family has a culture because every individual has kind of a culture. Wherever you go, you carry around this, this culture with you. When somebody sees you coming in a store... Or they see you coming in church. Now, unconsciously, sometimes consciously, but always unconsciously, even when your name is brought up in a, in a conversation, they associate your name with a character quality. Or when you're involved in a transaction with them, they have an expected uh, interaction. It may be good or it may be bad. Listen, that has to do with your culture. That is an individual culture. We call it character. 
but the sum of, of your character interactions and so forth, that becomes your culture. Now, your family is the same way. When people think about your family, they, they, think, of, they think of certain character qualities. They think of certain interactions that when they're with your family or you as a couple, they're going to be treated in certain ways. A positive culture is by design. A negative culture is by default. We drift towards chaos. We drift towards sin. We're born sinners. If you're going to have something positive in your life, it's by the grace of God. You've been saved and God gives you His Word. He wants you, as we sang this morning, to trust and obey, to follow Him. And you begin to honor the Lord. You begin to obey the Lord and follow His design. And the result of that, some positive things be, begin to happen in your life. And here's what happens as you become like Jesus. I'm going to phrase it this way, kind of like the world expresses it. There is a positive culture in your personal life. And as you begin to implement those things in your Family's life as they begin to be influenced by Christ. A positive culture happens within your family. Now friends, if you want a biblical culture in your family, it will be there by intention, by design, not by default. I came across this quote this past week. I like this. Listen to this. Family culture is what makes our house a home to come back to. I like that. Family culture is what makes our house a home to come back to. But it's also what makes our home a place why our children don't come back for the holidays. Sometimes it's because of the culture that's there. A culture of criticism. A culture of micromanagement. It's a culture. It's to be expected. When your kids think about you, what do they think about? Harshness? Negativity? So you carry this culture around with you, and and usually you have it so long, and you can justify it, you don't even think about it. And your kids grow up, and you think, what's what's happened here? And stay with me for the whole message. I'm going to weave all this together and, and put a bow on it at the end. So stay with me, please. It's the reason that there's tension at family gatherings, at the family table, sometimes at family reunions, and other times. So my question this morning is this, is what is the culture in your home? You have one. The good news is it can be changed. I want to encourage you to that. I want this to be a a message of encouragement, but sometimes before we can be encouraged, we have to say, okay, here's where there's a gap. And where I am and where God wants me to be. So I need to go in this direction. And let me give you kind of a, an earthy illustration with this. Uh, when you go home this afternoon, unless, unless you have another problem with your home. Uh, after you go out to eat or if you're eating at home, whatever happens. When you, when, you, when you cross the threshold, you open the door and you cross the threshold of the front door. And you walk in, you, you will feel better immediately. Because there's something called air conditioning. And it's a lot cooler. Humidity's down and you feel better. And so you're going to walk upstairs if you want to. You can go look at your thermostat. And you can look at the temperature. You can look at the thermometer as it were. 
And you can read it, 70, 72, 73, and it will tell you what, what the temperature in your home is. But the temperature has no power. The temperature is a reflection of the atmospheric culture in your home. Every, every home, every person has a temperature. You have a culture temperature. So when you walk into your house, you have a culture immediately. It's a physical culture of how cool it is or how warm it is. And you can look literally and, and it has certain degrees. But the power, listen carefully, the power is not in the temperature or the thermometer. It's in the thermostat. Because the thermostat controls the temperature. Now, what we do typically is we try to control the temperature. Now, son, don't do this. Honey, don't do that. We, we need to control these behaviors. Let's control these things. Let's, let's get a fan going. Let's, and it doesn't work. What we need to do is control the thermostat. Now, the thermostat in your home for the culture is God. And the deputy in the home is the father and the mother. God has designed the father to be the leader, and the mom comes alongside of him and helps him. So, humanly speaking, under God's authority is the father. Listen, he is the thermostat in the home to establish the culture. That means that I am responsible in my family uh, under God's authority, with his help, by his grace, to establish the culture in my family. Not my children. And not my wife. Though she has a great deal to do with it. And when I'm gone, she's in charge of that. And in a sense, both of us are responsible. But I'm particularly responsible. The Bible teaches in Ephesians 5, and you can read that later, that that the man is the head in the family under Christ. So I want you to understand that, that the thermostat is the most important part of the culture. And fellas, you need to feel empowered by God. And ma'am, you do too. And sometimes we say, well, it's, 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 you know, all of these, the music and man, the media. Well, it's your responsibility to control those things. I mean, what's on your kid's phone? What are they listening to? That's your job. Because those things are going to affect the culture. If you keep on doing what you've been doing, you're going to keep on getting what you've been getting. What do your kids go to? Well, I can't know everything. No, you, but you need to do your best. You need to control those things. You're the thermostat. If you don't like the temperature, change the thermostat. We'll talk about that in a moment. I said this last week, and I believe this, no one has a godly family accidentally. Nobody does. When you see a a husband and wife that love each other, and and kids that that respect them, and they follow them, it's not an accident. With God's help, somebody, somebody in that family set the thermostat. And you cannot, you cannot delegate that to the church, to the children's church pastor or the youth pastor or the pastor or a Christian school. You cannot do it.
It's a father's responsibility. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. You're not going to make a fool of God about this. You're not the exception for whatsoever. Notice that word, whatsoever. A man soweth that, that, that means that product, that type of seed, shall he also reap. That means the seeds that I sow one day will blossom into the kind of environment that I have in my home. I have my hand on the thermostat with God's help for good or bad. Someone said, you are free to choose, but you're not free from the consequences of your choice. And environments are created by choices. I've been, I've been so careful about that in our church. From the day I, t- I took this church, from the day I became the youth pastor here, there were certain uh, environments that I, under my pastor, under his authority, I, I would seek permissions and so forth. I remember I've told you this story before. I walked into chapel. I was responsible for the Christian schools' chapels. And I walked in here. We had them in here. We had 320 students, and we had different chapels. We had elementary. We had high school. And the high school chapel was like a funeral home because they had a rule. The kids couldn't talk. They walked in. Nobody could talk. They sat there like wooden Indians. I mean, it was as cold as it could be. They had the 7th graders and the 8th graders and the ninth graders. And because the seniors were privileged, they sat on the back row. And I thought for a couple of weeks and very respectfully. And if he just said no, he'd have been right and I'd have been wrong. And I, I wouldn't have had a problem with it. But I thought, you know, I wonder what my pastor would think. I, I said, Brother Terry, I want to ask you a question. He said, could we make two, two changes? So first of all... Uh, could we have our kids to allow them to talk in chapel? But it's so quiet in there, and they talk in class. They talk on the way over here. When they come in there, I'm afraid they're associating God with, with something that is not healthy. And I appeal to him. He says, sure. Because he never made the rule. It's just something we'd always done. And I said, the other thing... I would like to ask you about is we we have the seniors and juniors on the back row and, and I think they believe it's a privilege and they're back there slumped down and could we put the seniors on the front row and the juniors on the and all the way put the put the seventh graders in the back and change the whole identity of what we're trying to do in there that that we're trying to you're a leader and I didn't say it quite with that much enthusiasm but I, I, I desired that he said absolutely. He's a good guy, good man, not because he agreed with me. And we did that. And we began to change the culture. And our school grew from 320 to 180. You say, well, that's not growth. Oh, yes, it is. Because you have certain kids that say, that's not what I want. Well, maybe you don't belong in this kind of a school. Out on our, our church sign, it said, Trina Village Baptist Church, Fundamental Independent Missionary. Well, I knew what that meant. Most people, when they think about fundamental, it's no fun, all damn and no mental. Uh, well, they're driving by. It was right here in our neighborhood. Independent meant isolated. Missionary, I guess that meant you have a lot of missionaries in. 
Now, I knew what every one of those words meant. But is the sign for us or is it for our, our people in our neighborhood? I said, preacher, I've been thinking about that sign. What do you think about this? I said, we know who we are. But is that a magnet for guests or is it detracting? Because those words, they don't understand those words. What if we took that out and put a new sign up that just said church with a heart? He said, I like that. I said, well, I just think it would be more inviting. It's a little bit more warm. Now, you understand? Are you listening to me? You see, these are changes, but they have to do with culture. From the time I was a youth pastor, from the time I've been a pastor, I have been concerned with the truth, yes, but I've been concerned also about with, with creating an informal, an informal culture. I, I've had people that have come to our couples retreat and they, they've said, some pastors and so forth will say, well, how do you do this? You get a hotel, you get a speaker, you get a date. And I said, yeah, well, I can do that. And I thought, well, yeah, but we, we didn't do this. We just started out with a handful of people for, for our, our little church. But the reason people come here is not because of the hotel. They don't come here because of musicians. They don't come here because of the preacher. They come to the couples retreat because of the culture. I've told our staff before, I said, and I haven't used that word with them, but the sauce of that couples retreat is the culture. And I want to protect it. Now, you can put a lot of different things in there. But here's my question. I say all that to say this. What do you want your family to look like? Now, sometimes it'll take its own life, but in a positive way. What kind of culture? And grandmas and grandpas, when when your grandkids come to your house, what kind of culture? Because you say, well, Mikey, I'm, I'm just turning this off. No, you can't. You have a culture when your grandkids come over. My grandkids know what to expect from me and Paula, and it's different. And then together we create a synergy so that when they think about coming over, they look forward to it. And they have some expectations. Well, well, I hope, I hope that, and I said this last week, but hope is not a strategy. And God can change these things, but you've got to get a firm idea about this. Now listen to this. When you're intentional about your culture, it will affect the way you spend your money. It will affect the, way, the amount of time you spend with your children and what you do with your children in those times. One of the things that every one of my kids talks about, every one of them, when they write me notes or, or we just talk, is at, at some point they say, Dad, I remember these vacations. They remember our vacations. And listen, we had some really dry times. But I made it of value to go on vacations. Because I want to go on a trip? No. Because my kids are gone. Aubrey's there, but she's practically gone. I mean, she's 
She's gone now. She's at a friend down in Florida. She's just home a couple of months in the summer now. Because those memories are so precious. When you're intentional about your culture, it has to do with the, the conversations, the type of conversations you have in your home, what you permit in your home, what you do not permit. These are, these are culture developers. I'm just highlighting some things. The value you place on church attendance, the priorities you establish, the friends that you spend with as mom and dad, and the friends that you allow your kids to, to spend time with. That's going to determine the culture you have. And then it's kind of a, a, a kind of a mixed brew or making a stew. You've got all of these little ingredients. It's not just one thing. Culture is, is kind of a, I don't want to say magic, but it, it happens by a variety of things. And then bang, it's there. And it's not ever perfect. Sometimes you have to make an adjustment. But here's what I'm saying. Listen, the environment in your home is not accidental. It is a result of the values, priorities, the habits, the experiences that you choose under the Lordship of Christ for your family. Your culture is the atmosphere of your home. It's what makes your family unique. Every family is different. Now today I want to help you, and I'm going to go through the rest of this quick. I I need to have a big front porch before we got in the house. I feel like I need to sell you on on, on how important that is. On the matter of the atmosphere of growth, a culture of growth. Parents are to create an atmosphere in the home of growth that motivates their children to maturity. That's the idea I'm going to give you today. On parents and grandparents, and you can be aunts and uncles and do this too. Lindsay is here today. She's my niece. And... uh, and I have a culture with her. She knows one day when I go to heaven, if Jesus does, she's going to tell her mama, Uncle Rick was the silliest man I've ever met in my life. Now that is my culture with her. But she loves me. Now I don't know what she's going to say about Hoss. But I know what she's going to say about me because I love her. But my relationship with Lindsay is different than the one I have with one of her brother and sister. There's an environment that you have, a personal and a corporate. Children grow faster and better in an environment designed for them to do so. In Ephesians chapter 6, here's where this is found. And I gave it to you last week. Look at it again. Ephesians 6, the best verse in the Bible on parenting. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. (coughs) Pardon me. We focused in on those three words in the second line there. But bring them up. Specifically, bring them up in nurture, which is in discipline. Admonition is in teaching or, or correction and counsel, I like to say. But I want to just isolate those three words. Bring them up. Bring them up. That has to do with establishing an atmosphere. The, the Greek word there means to rear a child to maturity, to bring them up, to raise them, to mature them, to feed them in order to make them strong, to care for, to provide for them. You do that physically, 
He's not talking about feeding them physically here. He's talking about feeding them emotionally and even spiritually. Bring them up. Four truths, and I'll not spend much time on the first two. Number one, growth is a process. It's not an event. It's a series of small events that creates the process. But bring them up, bring them up. Most parenting focuses on the event. And Johnny, we're going to church tonight. Now you've got to be still. And if you're not still, here's what's going to happen. Now look, when they're young, you have to do that. Okay, I understand. Or we're going out to eat tonight and we're going to be with the family. Now here, here's what I expect. But listen, when you consistently focus on the event rather than the process, and you do not train them in the expectations, but you focus on the event Rather than the process, the events will never be what they should be. Because they, they've never learned how to behave in the home. If they're not going to honor you in the home, they're not going to honor you in the restroom. In fact, they know, when, they know when they have you on their turf. And their turf is when they're in public with other people. That's their turf. But it's a process. You have to consistently... Enforce that. Bring them up. And it takes a lot of patience. It's easy to have a child. It's difficult to raise a child. And last week I gave you four areas that requires patience in this process. Number two, not only is growth a process, growth is intentional. And we need this plan to, to nourish them, to develop them, and feed them with our words. Feed them with our example. Feed them with our expectations. It's conscious. Now, sometimes the environment is unconscious. It's formal and informal. Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7 teaches us this. Informal times have a great impact, but there needs to be a formal matter of this too, where there's intentionality, and that will help you with the informal impact. Now, I gave you four needs that children have last week. I won't go through those. My sister Melanie's here uh, this morning. She's been here all week. And uh, to be very honest, uh, she and myself and Hoss are, are still grieving over my mom's passing. So she comes here and uh, she stays down there with Hoss some. And so we've seen each other every day. So she gave me this card. She's been going through some of my mom's drawers. I came across... In fact, several cards she's given to me. This Mother's Day card and that I wrote to her. And as I read it last night, I thought about it. Boy, that speaks to the intentionality of my mom. I just want to read just it. Take 30 seconds. It says, Mom, you taught me to tie my shoes, to love my friends, help my neighbors. You taught me not to waste anything, moments or water, money or chances. You taught me to give and to forgive. And to move forward with the life that I have been blessed with. Thank you, Mom. And I just wrote a few lines. Mom, what a perfect card that so expresses my heart. The phrase, you taught me. And all of the lessons written here are so precise and appropriate of you. You're well loved by many, many people, but most of all by your own children. My life is immeasurably enriched because of you. Best of all, you taught me about Jesus. I love you so very much. Happy Mother's Day. 
My, my mom, here, listen, my mom was an intentional teacher. She intentionally put things into our lives, and because of that, she created a culture. Growth is a process. Growth is intentional. Number three, growth is personal. Growth is personal. This will help you. This will help you. In fact, the others, I hope, will help you. Growth is personal. Growth is best accomplished by by personal attention. You know, if you really want to learn something, you don't learn it in a classroom. You learn it in a tutorial relationship. I remember when we were... um, when we were homeschooling, we would go to various uh, educational uh, seminars and so forth. And, and we didn't just sign up for homeschooling. It's okay if you do that. But we took a lot of things to help us be prepared to do this. And one of the things we learned, and I, I concurred, I, I agreed. They were teaching us how that, you know, the Cadillac of instruction is tutorial. And how that, one of the illustrations they gave us was playing tennis. If you had a class of of 30, let's say, or 25, take a smaller classroom, 25, and you had someone up front teaching how to, how to play tennis, how to serve, and how to, you know, do backhands and so forth. Can you learn in a class of 25? Absolutely, even having them out on a court, each one. But if the instruction is one-on-one, who would learn the most? Well, that's, that's a no-brainer. Now, obviously, it depends a lot on the instructor, but but who's going to learn the most? And sometimes, even if the instructor may not know as much, you're still going to learn more in a tutorial relationship. And stay with me. Growth is personal. It's customized. Now, had you turn to 1 Thessalonians 2, this is a chapter on discipleship. But what God does here is He illustrates the process of discipleship with parenting. He talks about the role of a mom and the role of a dad. Now, look here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and look at verse 11. You got it? 1 Thessalonians 2, 11. You may want to underline some of these things. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. Do you see that? As a father doth his children. I preached on this many years ago on Father's Day. These are the responsibilities of a father to his children in the home. Now, what I want you to see here in this text, a number of things. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged. Look at these four words. Every one of you. You see the individuality of that? It was customized. It wasn't personal. Not all of you. Okay, all, how many of your kids you have? All two, three, four, five, whatever. Now, all, all five of you get in here. I, I want to talk to you about character. And that's better than nothing. But the Cadillac, may I say this, a biblical way, is to do it customized, individual. Oh, Brother Rick, I don't have time. It takes a lot of time. Do you care about the environment? Do you care about your kids? And there are, three, there are three aspects of this training, of this growth focus in the role of a father. Exhortation, we exhorted you. Comforting, we comforted you. And charging, we charged you. 
The word exhorted there means to call close to a person by invitation or to come alongside. So I'm inviting you to come alongside. And if you don't, I come alongside of you. This has to do with the mental aspect of instructing. Where I would see something and say, hey, come on, let me, let me show you how to do that. And that may be repairing something. It may be something on how to say yes sir or no, sir. It may be something else, but, but it's instructing them. It has to do with mental things. We're fixing character flaws. The word comforting there also means come alongside, but it has the idea of speaking words to someone. This is the emotional component. This has to do with encouraging. They need comfort. They need strengthening. They failed. I remember that time I struck out when the, the bases were loaded and we had two outs. I was the guy up, bottom of the inning, ended the game. Coach called the team over there. He, he didn't say anything negative to me, but I knew. At least I felt like, man, I caused our team to lose. I didn't think about all the other guys that had made outs or made errors. And some of you that have done this, you played athletics, you understand. I think I was nine years old. And I held it together till the coach dismissed us, announced our next practice or whatever. Everybody began to scatter. My dad was there. He was in the stands. And he came alongside me. He comforted me. The tears began to stream down my face. I had failed. He put his arm around my shoulder. We walked together to the concession stand. He got me something to eat, something to drink. We got in his truck and I said, Daddy, I, I cost us the game. I was weeping. He said, no, you didn't. He told me stories about how that he had messed up athletically and how that other guys had made mistakes. I'm 62 years old. That was over, over 50 years ago. I still remember that. My dad comforted me. That was his role. It was a, it was a culture in our relationship. It, it became a culture in our home. The Bible says a father is to charge his children. This has to do with the will. Exhorting with the mind. Comforting with the emotions. Charging has to do with the will. This is challenging. To charge them. You get the, if, if I were to put the Greek word up here, it's the word witnessing. We get the word martyr from it, to witness. You witness to your children. How do you witness to them? You tell them stories. Son, I want to tell you a story about what happened to me when I did that. If you speed, you're going to get a ticket. If you violate that law, you're going to get in trouble. Let me tell you a story about when I decided not to go out with the wrong crowd. And you begin to charge them. You begin to, you see stories, as I told you a few weeks ago, are so important to your children. They remember these stories. Here's the point. You exhort, you comfort, you charge every one of your children as a father does. Discipleship is personal. How many times have I said here before, the most important form of discipleship that you ever have is with your children? It's first line. May I say this? If you discipled your children, 
we wouldn't have to have a lot in our church. I feel like the primary role of the church is to equip the parents to disciple their children. It's not for us to be about what we need to be about discipling all everybody else. I think there's a factor there, yes. I think the primary role of the church is to equip the fathers, as Malachi 4, 6, is to turn the heart of the fathers to the children first, and then to turn the heart of their children to the fathers. And, and that's a culture, if you will. But it's also so that it can equip them to do these three things and others. And then when we come to church, it's a whole different environment. There are appropriate words at specific times, as I've illustrated. And when you give these appropriate words at specific times, your kids mature, they grow. It gives them a safe place. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, just two or three pages over. Let me show you another way this is illustrated. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. The Bible speaks about three types of people here. And your children will be every one of these. First Thessalonians 5.14. Now we exhort you, brethren. He's talking about church members here. This is a passage about the church and church members. But your children fit this too. Now we exhort you, brethren. And notice the types of people here. Warn them, number one, that are unruly. You have unruly people. People that step out of line. They're not in line. They're unruled. They're insubordinate. Comfort the feeble-minded, people that are discouraged, they're weak of heart. They're very discouraged. And then support the weak. The word weak there has the idea of people that are weak in the faith. It means that they, they're ignorant, if you will. They, they don't know enough. They're immature. That's what it means. So sometimes your kids will be rebellious. Sometimes they'll be discouraged. And sometimes they... They make a mistake, not out of rebellion, but it was just they're not mature enough or they didn't know enough. And it's because of childishness. And you need the discernment to know that. Now I want you to notice how we're to treat each group. Appropriate words for appropriate times. If your child is unruly, they need to be warned. Notice that. Warn the rebellious child. If your child is discouraged, they need to be encouraged. Lift their hearts. When your child is is weak, when they're ignorant, they need to be supported. That's what they need. And then the Bible there says, and be patient towards all men. In other words, in all of it, be patient because it's not an event, it's a process. That's the idea. It's a process. Now follow me. Watch this. If you respond wrongly, and you will because you're a sinner as a parent, you do great damage. If you comfort the unruly, when your child is a rebel, oh, son, I understand, you know, that's a bad teacher. and Man, the youth pastor, he's just not what he ought to be. And yeah, I know. You're comforting an unruly child. You're, you're going against the Word of God. When you warn the discouraged, I, I read a thing on Twitter the other day. I sent it to Daniel and Tim. I said, pray for this man. He was very discouraged because of, of the COVID crisis and what was happening in his church. 
I read some of the comments. One, one guy got on there and says, hey, toughen up. And he had just bared his heart. And he said, please pray for me. I, I read that. I thought, wow, this man is very discouraged. You don't warn people that are weak, people that are discouraged. And then when people are ignorant, they, they just made a mistake. It was just, it wasn't intentional. They just weren't mature enough. You support them. Don't warn them. You teach them. You instruct them. You need to make sure, you need to have discernment to know where, where was my child on this, on this scale. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6, it says, I'm going to misquote it. Okay? Train up your children in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. doesn't say that. It's not corporate. It's personal. Train up a child in the way he and the way she should go, and when he is old, and when she is old, he, she will not depart. It's all over that verse. Training, discipleship, encouragement, warning, comforting, creating the culture is personal. And that takes time. It means that you're going to have to become an expert on training and an expert on each child. May I ask you a question in all sincerity? Those of you that have children, those of you that are grandparents, have you read a book on parenting? There's some really good podcasts. I mean, biblically based podcasts. Do you ever listen to them? Have you ever read or listened to things on, on biblical grandparenting? Do you know what the Bible teaches about these things? I say this truly, not out of anger, but, but out of compassion. You're headed for a train wreck. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall we also reap. If you're not listening and reading and growing and developing, the culture that you have is toxic. Become an expert on those things. If you want to be an expert on anything, this is one you ought to be an expert on. And then lastly, I'll mention this, is that growth is not only a process, it's not only intentional, it's not only personal, I like this. Growth requires grace. It always requires grace. It's not being a tyrant. Nobody grows under a tyrant. Your children are going to make mistakes, and so are you. And they need a man. They need a mom with grace. Bring them up. Bring them up. Bring them up with grace, with kindness. The same... uh, Expression bring them up is used in the chapter before. It's used in Ephesians 6 4, but also in Ephesians 5 29. It's used of, of a husband and about the Lord Jesus. When God said, tells a man to love his wife like Jesus, like Christ loved the church, it says, For no man ever yet hated his own body, his own flesh. Watch this, but nourisheth. That's, that's the same word there as far as bring them up. But nourisheth, it means to feed them. You feed your body. You cherish your body. You protect your, you take care, you treat it good. Watch this, even as the Lord, the church. 
Jesus is my standard. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. He cares for me. He feeds me. He's good to me when I'm not good to Him. He's faithful to me when I'm not faithful to Him. He is my standard as a parent. He is my standard as a husband. And that means that I must be, I must be gracious in all of this. There's no externalism involved where I'm not trying to create the perfect child because I'm not the perfect parent. I'm not doing this to, to receive accolades from people. Wow, look at, look at that home. You're such a great dad. What a great marriage. Oh no, that's full of holes. Because it's not true of any of us. The father in the home is to reflect God's heart. I think this is why many times our children are afraid to admit failure to us right here. Because we don't have grace. Because our expectations are so high. And they know that we don't even meet them. And we don't humble ourselves. And we ought to have high expectations. But when we don't meet them, we ought to ask forgiveness. Listen. The the most tender, the most tender conversations I've ever had with my kids have been when they messed up. On this side of the violation, I will draw the line. I will warn them. But after it happens, there's a lot of mercy for me. There's a lot of grace for me. Where else are they going to go? To their friends? To the world? That's where they're going to go, to the world. I had a friend who came to our home and one night he had an accident, he had a car accident. He had a brutal father. And before he went home, it wasn't a bad accident. It just a little fender bender. But he walked in the front door and he had been crying. As I recall, he was a senior in high school. And he said, I had a wreck. I got to go home and tell my dad, but I don't want to. He's going to be so angry with me. We sat there and listened to him, and my dad, who was kind of a quiet man, but he had a lot of wisdom, Daddy said, well, well, son, do you have insurance? He said, uh, yes, sir. He said, well, that's what insurance is for. I remember I sat there and I said, yeah, that's right. That's what insurance is for. And I saw, I saw an attitude in my father that was so different in this other father who expected his son not to ever have an accident. I was driving in the parkway between Bob Wallace and Drake one time on the little side road there going south. I was driving the little van that Daddy had for work. And I looked over. I was fixed to get in the lane. It changed my driving habits forever. And... Uh, I looked there and nobody was there. I, turned over, I heard a little bump. I said, oh, I hit somebody. Those of you who know what I did, I looked. At, it was in the blind spot. Since then, those of you that are young, listen, you don't just look in the mirror. You have to look over your shoulder. By the way, it happened one time. It never happened again. 
But I just pumped him. We pulled off, looked at it. And I had just hit him enough to tear off a little strip he had on his car. Dad had an auto parts store. But I was so afraid, not because my dad was upset. I just didn't want to do anything. I went home. I said, Dad, I hit this guy's car. I got his address. I don't think there's a lot of damage. Oh, man, I, I, I didn't understand how insurance worked. So well, all right, that's all right. We'll see what happens. Guy came by the shop. Daddy had everything he needed, had the right colors. There was no damage to the body. Everything was fine. But I remember, listen, I remember my daddy's attitude towards me. And listen, when you make a mistake, when your kids make a mistake, and they tell you about it, they're always going to remember the first thing that comes out of your mouth. Always. Only in an environment of grace is a close relationship possible. When there is no grace, your children will hide their failures. When I was a youth pastor and I met with parents, I used to quote this frequently, to help the kids. Especially junior high kids were like this. Senior high kids were too. I don't know who this man was. His name was John White. But I want to quote from John White what he said in a book. And he said, this is how teenagers feel. Listen. He said this, I am afraid to tell you who I am. Because you may not like who I am. And that's all that I have. I never forgot that. I'm afraid to tell you who I am. Because you may not like who I am. And that's all that I have. Are your kids afraid to tell you who they are and what they've done? Or do you have the grace of God to come in and just minister to them? Ted Tripp wrote this. He wrote it about determinism, which is a belief that a person cannot be held morally responsible for their actions. In other words, it's it's not my fault. And deterministic teaching means that your kids come up and say, well, it's not my fault, it's my parents' fault. It's the culture in my home. Because I want you to understand, parents have a responsibility, but kids have a responsibility to obey. They have a responsibility to listen. I've been tough on the parents. I think parents do a bad job today of being proactive with the culture. I think our young people don't listen well. But I, I want you to listen about the grace of God. Ted Tripp said, Determinism makes parents conclude that good shaping influences will automatically produce good children. I don't believe that. I don't want you to think I'm teaching that. Because it didn't work for Adam and Eve. God put them in a perfect environment. This often bears bitter fruit later in life. Parents who have an unruly and troublesome teenager... Our young adult conclude that the problem is the shaping influences they provided. They think if they had made a little better home, things would have turned out okay. They forget that the child is never determined solely, S-O-L-E-L-Y, just only. The environment's important, but not only that. They forget that the child is never determined solely by shaping influences of life. Remember that Proverbs 4.23 instructs you that the heart is the fountain from which life flows. Your child's heart determines how he responds to your parenting. 
Best thing you do is get them to Jesus and create an environment that reflects Jesus. One lady wrote this. She said, everything that isn't gospel is law. Rules alone won't get it. Every way we try to make our kids good that isn't rooted in the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is damnable, crushing, despair-breeding, and Pharisee-producing law. It's just rules. And we will not get the results we want from the law. We'll either get shallow, self-righteous, or blazing rebellion, or both frequently from the same kid on the same day. Or we'll get moralistic kids who are cold and hypocritical and who look down on others. Or you'll get teenagers who are rebellious, self-indulgent, and can't wait to get out of the house. We have to remember that in the life of our unregenerate children, the law is given for one reason only, to crush their self-confidence and to drive them to Christ. I'm not advocating for externalism. I'm advocating for an atmosphere of Christ-likeness and wholeness that will push them to Christ. This morning, moms and dads, would you create an atmosphere of grace, an atmosphere of growth, so your young people can, can mature and grow? It's possible to be in this kind of environment and not take advantage of it or be grateful for it. Those of you that are, that are younger here this morning, I want you to consider that one day the environment that you're in will be gone. And only then you'll realize what you had. And you'll be thankful. But your parents will be gone and you won't be able to thank them. Realize today what you have. That it's hard to do this. That your parents are working. And they're praying. And they hurt and they're disappointed when you make mistakes and you sin. And you be grateful for what they do. And let's work. Let's humble ourselves under the Lord Jesus and ask Him to help us to create and to cooperate with this atmosphere that He wants us to have in our homes. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we leave today, I would ask you in the name of the Lord Jesus to help us. We cannot do this by making a commitment because our will is not strong enough. But I believe we can do this by surrender. And just by coming to you and saying, Lord, I I want to do this, but it's not in me to do it real good. So I pray that you would help me. I pray all over this room that there will be moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas. And aunts and uncles that would say, Lord, help me to be aware of the environment that I carry personally and the environment that I have in my family and for my children, my grandchildren. I pray for those of us that are sons and daughters 
that you would help us to be grateful and be mindful of what our moms and dads who have gone ahead of us and done for us and the sacrifices they've made. We are indebted to them. Even if they messed up a lot, there were some good things they did and they helped us. I pray you would take your words. We've spent a lot of time in your word this morning. And Lord, do something about them. Help us not to walk out of here and leave your words on the floor. Lord, may we carry them with us. And as we sang this morning, to trust and obey. May we do something about them today. In Jesus' name, amen.